This is Speaking of Writers on Capital Region Sunday. Usually remembered for its slogan, Tippecanoe and Tyler II. The election of 1840 is also the first presidential election of which it might be truly said, it's the economy, stupid. Tackling a contest best known for log cabins, cider barrels, and catchy songs, this timely volume reveals that the election of 1840 might be better understood as a case study of how profoundly the economy shapes the presidential vote. The book is Old Tip versus The Sly Fox, the 1840 election and the making of a partisan nation by Richard J. Ellis. Richard Ellis is Mark O. Hatfield, professor of politics, policy, law, and ethics at Willamette University. His many books include... The Development of the American Presidency, 3rd Edition, Historian-in-Chief, How Presidents Interpret the Past to Shape the Future as Co-Editor, and From Kansas, Presidential Travel, The Journey from George Washington to George W. Bush. Happy to have Richard Ellis join me now here on Speaking of Writers. Richard, welcome to this program. Thank you. Happy to be here. So why this book for you, first off? Well, one... uh, mundane answer to that is uh, it's part of a book series on presidential elections published by University Press of Kansas, uh, and Mike Nelson is a co-editor, and he's a very persuasive guy, and he was trying to get me to write about, take a book in the in the series and write about one of the elections, and it's a super series, so I was happy to be a part of that. Um, but the more relevant uh, answer, I guess, is I was very intrigued by the idea of a political scientist, which is what I am by training, trying to write a book about a 19th century election, which generally is left to historians. And of course, they do a very, very good job. And all of the books in that series by on the 19th century elections are by historians. Um, and so that the challenge of blending some of the virtues of the disciplines of history, the, the, the storytelling and the scrupulous attention to historical facts and primary sources that I associate with all good historians, and then trying to also bring to bear some of the lessons of the political scientists have learned from systematic study of voting behavior and campaigns over the last 75 years. And the 1840 election seemed like a particularly apt moment in time to think about the possible relevance of political science, um, because as you mentioned in that introduction, here's an election that's remembered for its exciting log cabin campaign and memorialized in that most famous of campaign slogans, to be canoe and Tyler too. And yet it's also an election that takes place at a time of tremendous economic crisis and economic contraction. And as important that it, it was after 12 years of rule by the same political party, um, and all the political science models and theories tell us that that's an election where the campaign may not matter much. Um, and so it was interesting to me to think about this most famous of campaigns and, and does all that campaigning really signify very little? Um, and if so, how, how do you account for the huge increase in voter turnout in 1840, which is a huge part of the story of 1840? So it was really the opportunity to explore that 
puzzle or set of questions that made me want to take a closer look at the 1840 election. Richard Ellis is my guest here on Speaking of Writers. His book is Old Tip versus the Sly Fox, the 1840 Election and the Making of a Partisan Nation. I want to backtrack, Richard, to 1836. Why did the Whigs lose that election? Well, I don't want to make everything about the economy, but it's certainly the case that the economy was doing well. 1836, I think of as kind of like uh, 1988, uh, the election that George Herbert Walker Bush won after eight years of the Reagan administration, just as Van Buren won after uh, eight years of the Jackson administration. You had a popular incumbent and a seemingly strong economy, and that gave a tremendous advantage to Van Buren and the Democratic Party, just as it gave a tremendous boost to George Herbert Walker Bush in, in 88. But also important, and indeed crucial, was that the opposition, the, the so-called Whig Party, really barely warranted the name of a political party at that point. Um, and many of them even distrusted the entire idea of political parties. They couldn't even agree on a nominee, and so they ran different candidates in different parts of the country. They ran Daniel Webster in Massachusetts, uh, Hugh White from Tennessee in the South, and they ran William Henry Harrison in most of the rest of the country. Um, and I think the 1836 election is important, and unfortunately nobody's ever written a book about the 1836 election, but it's important because I think the Whig takeaway from that election was that if they wanted to win the presidency, they needed to be a unified political party, and they needed a national nominating convention if they were going to unify the party, was something they didn't have in 1836, hence the different nominations in different states. Um, and ironically, a couple of states that resisted the idea the longest, you know, Georgia and Tennessee, uh, were southern states, and it, it was there not showing up at the Whig Party National Nominating Convention in December 1839, which played a big role, um, an arguably decisive role, in giving the nomination to Harrison over Clay, um, which is ironic because those states would unquestionably have preferred Clay to be the to be the Whig nominee. But at that point, I think the answer is at that point in 1836, the Whigs were not a particularly organized political party. They were a collection of people who were opposed to Andrew Jackson, but they had not yet worked out a kind of common uh, ideology platform. Chatting with Richard Ellis here on Speaking of Writers. His book is Old Tip versus the Sly Fox, the 1840 election, the making of a partisan nation. So let's now fast forward to 1840. You've got Democratic incumbent Martin Van Buren against Whig, William Henry Harrison. Why did the Whigs choose Tyler as Harrison's running mate? Uh, so... The short answer to that is that Clay's supporters, particularly those in the South, were really not happy that the Whig Party had nominated William Henry Harrison. Not a single Southern state voted in favor of Harrison at the Whigs' nominating convention. They all voted for Clay on each and every ballot. Uh, and obviously, if the Whigs left Harrisburg, which is where they had that nominating convention in December of 1839. If they left there with the party still divided, the Whigs, even with the advantageous economy, would have been in big trouble. So the obvious place to start to try to win back the South and heal those divisions within the party was the vice presidency. And Tyler was a Southerner. 
So that was a big part of it. it. Had to be a southerner. So to your question of why Tyler specifically, I think there's a couple of answers. The first thing I would want to say about this is that much of what we've been told about the why Tyler question comes from contemporary accounts that were written after Harrison died, by which time it was clear uh, that the selection of Tyler had been a big mistake. Um, and so Whigs, who were eager to distance themselves from the selection of a president, Tyler, who ended up frustrating the Whig ambitions at every turn, including twice vetoing Whig bills to create a national bank, they claimed that Tyler's selection had been essentially forced upon the convention because nobody else would accept the nomination. And that story is just not true. In fact, Tyler was a very popular choice. He was selected on the first ballot. Um, he was popular for many reasons. He obviously hailed from electorally a crucially important state, a southern state, Virginia, where he served as uh, governor, senator, member of Congress, state legislator. Um, Second, he'd actually been selected as Harrison's vice presidential nominee in a number of states uh, in 1836, in Maryland uh, and in South Carolina, uh, in Georgia, in Tennessee. Those were in states that uh, the party had actually done pretty well in. Uh, third, he was widely admired by Whigs for having resigned his seat in the United States Senate in 1836. Um, rather than follow instructions from the Democratic-controlled Virginia state legislature who wanted to expunge a censure uh, of Andrew Jackson. And finally, Tyler was a friend and admirer of Clay and fought at the convention for Clay's uh, candidacy. So he had bona fides as a Clay loyalist. And from a 21st century perspective, I think it seems like a really strange choice because the idea was this was a balanced ticket, um, uh, not only because uh, but it was a balanced ticket, but here, if you look at who these people were, Harrison and Tyler, they're very similar. They're both to the, to the manner born, and in fact, their manners were like 20 miles apart. Both were raised on large plantations worked by slaves, and both were from politically prominent aristocratic families. Harrison's father was a signer of the Declaration of Independence. Tyler's father was a college roommate of Thomas Jefferson. Both had been governors of the state of, the state of Virginia. But that's what a balanced ticket looked like in 1839, I guess. Richard Ellis is my guest. Old Tip versus a Sly Fox is his book, The 1840 Election and the Making of a Partisan Nation. Richard, what was your research process like for this book? Well, I've, as I mentioned at the outset, I'm a political scientist by training. So one of the things I did was immerse myself in the election data. And early American elections are wonderful for, for data nerds because there are lots and lots of elections happening all the time. It was a land of sort of perpetual elections. Unlike today, all congressional elections did not take place on the same day. They're scattered across a two-year period, uh, not until, I think, uh, something like 1872 did Congress require that all congressional elections be held on the same day in November of even-numbered years. Um, and unlike today, a lot of gubernatorial elections occurred more frequently than every four years, and quite a number were every year, 
is in New England. Um, and so I tried to dig deeply into those election results in some ways. I think those election results are a little bit like reading poll numbers for politicians of those days because they were looking at those election results in the same way that we look at um, poll data. Anyway, so I, that's part of what I tried to do. But I also tried to do, I think, what any good historian does, which is immerse yourself in the personal papers and newspapers of the era. And, of course, with uh, newspapers being digitized, that's a lot easier uh, to do than when I first started out in graduate school some decades ago. Um, and I spent a lot of time, obviously, reading the amazing work that historians have, have done on this era. And it's, an, it's, a, it's a period that has a lot of great historical work. I ended up spending a lot of time with Clay's papers in particular, because I think he's in many ways the pivotal figure in the 1840 election, um, an unsung hero in a way, particularly his role in uh, unifying the party, um, that without that, uh, it's unlikely that the Whig Party could take could have taken advantage of the economic downturn, um, which isn't to glorify Clay and Clay, of, uh, of course, had the, he's a deeply flawed hero. He had a, a speech, uh, infamous speech called the Abolition Speech in the United States Senate, uh, which was part of his uh, Southern campaign, uh, so, so Southern strategy, if you like, in that in that campaign. And he he not only criticizes the abolitionists as fanatics, but he makes a lot of statements about race mixing and race war that are uh, were offensive then, or even more offensive now, but were absolutely appalling to abolitionists at the, at the time. Uh, he, he said that although he was no friend of slavery, um, he preferred you know, the liberty of his own race to the liberty of any other race and uh, sort of trusted in... in uh, time to eventually basically uh, get rid. He thought the higher birth rates of whites would uh, eventually eliminate the vestiges of what he called the black race. Um, anyway, so Clay, I, in saying that Clay is a, a sort of unsung hero of the campaign, I don't mean to uh, gloss over the fact that Clay was an incredible uh, racist. In fact, one of the things that is really interesting to me is that there's this saying that's associated with Clay in the 1840 campaign, which is, I had rather be right than be president. And in fact, that remark is so famous that you can, you can find it. You can buy the coffee mug on Amazon that has Clay's uh, you know, visage and, and those eight words. And the irony is that, in fact, uh, that speech... That, those eight words were about that speech, um, this incredibly racist speech. And not only was it a racist and revolting speech, really, uh, the irony is that the speech reflected anything but a desire to be right rather than be president. On the contrary, the speech was a carefully calibrated plank in that Southern strategy, which depended on getting Virginia's Whigs in the state legislature to endorse him, and he thought that if he could get them to endorse him, 
um, it would lead to other states, and especially New York, uh, to endorse him. So essentially, I mean, it was a risky play because it obviously would alienate anti-slavery elements in New York. Um, but by that time, Clay had already calculated that he didn't couldn't win anti-slavery support. So his strategy for securing New York was not appeasing upstate anti-slavery forces, but allying himself with conservative Democrats in that state, led by uh, a guy called Nathaniel Talmadge. And just as in Virginia, he was attempting to construct a coalition with conservative Democrats, led by William Rives. And I apologize for the clay digression, but in researching the book, I did find myself drawn to his story especially, because I think the most consequential decision for the nation in that campaign turned out to be the Whigs party's nomination of Harrison over Clay. And so understanding why the Whigs chose not to nominate the person who everybody agreed was their party's leader, Henry Clay, was a question that increasingly absorbed me during the researching and writing of the book. So I, there's a lot in the book about, about that decision, about how it is the Whigs come to nominate a relatively unknown person compared to Clay within the party. Richard Ellis, the book is Old Tip versus the Sly Fox, the 1840 election and the making of a partisan nation. Richard, thank you so much for joining me. Yeah, it's been a pleasure. And this is Speaking of Writers, and that is Capital Region Sunday, a production of Town Square Media Albany for this week. We'll be back again next week with another edition. I'm Steve Richards.